0: hate ads, but as investors, we might have to love them. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst, Tim Byers. How are you today, Tim?
1: Fully caffeinated, ready to go, Deidre.
0: Glad to hear it. This is going to be an advertising-heavy episode. Feels to me like advertising is moving everything lately, uh, even though it's been sort of an iffy market for it. But we have to kick things off with the House of Mouse, Disney. We had earnings uh, last night. To me, this felt like a transitiony kind of quarter. Losses were heavy not a surprise, maybe better than expected. CEO Bob Iger uh, dealing with multiple issues. One of them, which uh, we also saw with Paramount, uh, is that good old linear television, our old friend, it does not pay like it used to. Operating income at Disney's traditional channels down about 23%. Is traditional television, is it, is it over? Is it a losing game? What, what is the future of traditional television,
1: Tim? Oh, what a question. Um, (laughs) I I will say it's definitely losing steam, and because there are so many alternative platforms, and short form media is incredibly popular. Um, and and I'm not just talking about streamed media, I am talking about things like YouTube and TikTok. You cannot discount the impact of YouTube and TikTok as programming vehicles particularly for Gen Z and and younger I mean a lot of entertainment comes through those two channels and that makes it harder to get engagement if you're an operator of linear TV networks so is there must-see television on things like ABC I think the only appointment television really left are Live sporting events, for example. Sure. And I, I mean I haven't looked the ratings to see what Fox Sports is getting on, say like the Women's World Cup, although I think that has been amazing. And then there are other shows that get buzz. And increasingly the shows that do get buzz are not on linear networks, Deidre, They're on streamed cable channels. That tends to be how how it goes lately. So when we look at the linear networks, numbers as you you were alluding to here on a revenue basis revenue was down overall 7% year over year domestic channels down 4% international channels down 20% on an operating income basis domestic channels down 14% international channels were you know listed as not material but from 166 million dollar uh, profit in operating profit in the year prior to an 87 million dollar loss in the current year. So overall, you had you know a 23% decline in operating income for linear networks. That's that's really not a good sign here. And so it's it's hard to say exactly how well this is going to go. Now, to be fair, in the quarter, linear television still accounted for close to one point nine billion dollars in operating income, Deidre. So it's not going away overnight. And is there an avenue to rescue this through things like connected TV? I don't know, but there is there is something a bit more for these digitally native channels, so like the streamers that are I mean, they just feel like they're built. For connected TV from the ground up. And not surprisingly, Disney's kind of leaning into that with Disney Plus and the Hulu bundle.
0: Let's talk about that bundle because, man, Tim, I remember those good old days when streaming was like this cheaper alternative, and that is not the case anymore. So Disney's going to raise the cost of Disney Plus without ads to $13.99 a month. The Disney Plus and Hulu bundle, that's going to be $19.99 ad supported products are staying the same and disney is uh, expanding their ad supported content in europe and canada so two things happening here it's it's getting a lot more expensive to have different products and i think consumers are feeling that and then you've got the ad supported thing similar thing happening with netflix i feel like these streamers kind of maybe want you to take the ad option
1: well, I think they do. I mean, certainly in the case of what Netflix did, you know, you remember they they eliminated the nine ninety nine nine dollars ninety nine cents tier, and they said you've got the ad tier, and then you've got, I believe, the minimum after that is like either thirteen ninety nine or fifteen ninety nine. They eliminated the middle because they said, hey, look, the the message there was we make a lot with ads, so if you Want to be ad free? You're gonna have to pay up because we're making a lot of money with with ads. That's the message I got from Netflix, and they have been saying that they can make more. They think they can optimize even further. So Disney is leaning into something something similar. It's very interesting, Deidre, to see Disney. I won't say copycatting, but sort of looking at what's happening. Over at Netflix and saying, you know what? They really have kind of figured this out, particularly down at the per subscriber level. Netflix has really done a very good job of figuring out how to generate profits and cash flow per subscriber and that's not something that Disney has really unlocked yet. And if you wanted any more proof that this was true, just look at the password sharing crackdown yep. that now Disney <laughs> is deciding to do. So it's it's kind of fascinating to me. Let's just hit a couple of numbers very quickly here. So Disney Core, so that is domestic US and Canada and international that's excluding Hotstar which is generally in in India overall year over year it was close to immaterial 105.7 million paid subscribers versus 104.9 million in the quarter prior so that's up 1% overall but disney hotstar in you know on the indian subcontinent uh, that subscriber base has run f- for the the hills. I mean, down 24%, just quarter over quarter to 40.4 million from 52.9 million the quarter prior. Uh, ESPN Plus is roughly the same, and Hulu overall is also largely the same here. So the growth in the direct consumer business inside Disney has gone missing. So that leaves you if you're Disney in the position of having to raise prices, having to show value. It's gonna be fascinating, Deidre, when we get to the next series of ad cells. And I'm I'm not sure we're gonna get much information on this until maybe like next spring and say like the upfronts. But boy is that gonna be something when you have all of the streamers who are the big ad inventory suppliers saying all right come on in and Disney saying who wants Star Wars who wants Marvel who like and we're going to see we're going to see how much ad buyers really value those franchises but right now Disney is desperate to increase average profit per member because it doesn't look like they're generating much of anything right?
0: Now. Yeah, and we still don't have numbers really from Netflix on on the ads yet. They've been keeping that really really close to the vest so we don't know how that's playing out for them either.
1: No, we really don't. And I mean what we do have, uh, to be fair, if we're just looking at the average monthly revenue per paid subscriber, all of this points to Hulu. Right, it it, yeah. it points it it points directly to Hulu. It was down one percent in terms of the overall live TV uh, plus uh, video on demand bundle. But that's where all of the money is in terms of average monthly revenue per paid subscriber. Uh, the Hulu bundle gets Disney ninety one dollars and eighty cents per. If you're just talking about Disney Plus core. Both blended international and domestic. It's six dollars and fifty eight cents. That's up two percent quarter over quarter. But it's, re- I mean, the numbers just aren't moving. Um, ESPN Plus was down to five dollars and forty five cents from five sixty four. So they really do have to monkey around with with pricing uh, in order to to get this right. But I, I if I could make. Uh, in the spirit of This Week in Tech, I, if I could make a reckless prediction here. Oh, please, yes. <laughs> my, my reckless prediction is you are going to see a boatload of advertisements about upgrades to the Hulu bundle. I think Disney will be marketing the Hulu bundle like you have never seen before, because this is probably where, remember, Hulu was born with Ads native to the platform. Yeah. Like Hulu has always had ads, and that's been part of the story from the very beginning. So there's a lot they can do with it. They can make it a premium bundle and still wrap ads into it. I think it's where they have the, the greatest likelihood of generating sustainable profits in direct consumer. So expect them to market the absolute heck out of this, Deidre, especially heading into the holiday season.
0: I will join you on the reckless p- prediction and also say that I feel like in some ways it's easier to make Netflix style content with Hulu. With Disney Plus you have to it seems like you almost have to make the more expensive content. I think you've got more flexibility with Hulu to make to make the kind of things that are bingeable but sort of disposable.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean and, and sort of quirky content. Maybe quirky yeah. content, maybe uh shorter form, you know, and experimenting with licensing content that maybe doesn't get a, a lot of views but is is getting is getting more. I I read something um, and I forget. I I remember what it was. Suits Came up. Where, where did it go to? It Netflix. went to. Uh, it is like it number went to one Net- on
0: Netflix, oddly right. enough.
1: <laughs> yeah. And this is, this is the sort of thing like old content that you can license for a relatively reasonable fee, but it has a following and it's stuck around. It's never quite gone away. You could see more of that. You know, like what is the next suits that, that folds into Hulu that becomes a, a bit of a draw? I would expect to see some of that as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good point. Well, let's turn to one other part of Disney, which is this ESPN deal. This came out before the earnings, uh, their ESPN bet. It's their deal with Penn Gaming. Looks like it's going to sort of be... now we've got sports books with with Disney. Uh, you know, sports purist. I don't know. I think you might be a sports purist. Uh, they tend to not like it. Some people say this is a prelude to spinning off Disney and turning it into something more than content. Iger says we're not doing that. We might sell a steak, but not the whole thing. What do you think? Are are you a purist?
1: Well, I mean, I I don't know if I'm a purist. I mean, look, I love my sports. I don't I don't gamble. With the with the sports only because I don't feel like I've got the money to do it and I don't want to waste the the money on it. I guess if I had a lot of disposable income, I was like, yeah, I don't care about this. Then I'll I'll maybe throw it in there for for fun. But it just it doesn't really appeal to me. But I will tell you where I get maybe you know a little bit of old man sh- you know shouts at cloud on on this particular issue is that. I don't think we've seen this really work before, Deidre. Like, has it? Like, I mean, just because it's a thing and people do it, has it actually provided real tailwinds for a business that you or I could think of? I mean, I I think we could both cite Fubo TV, and I'm not so sure that this has been a rousing success for. Fubo TV, which is a stock that we we sold out of rule breakers. Now you could argue that my timing on selling that has been absolutely abysmal, and you would be right, because it has absolutely soared since we we sold it from a very low base. But as a matter of business, Deidre, I don't remember, you know, sports betting actually really Generating the kind of cushion competitive moat that FUBO thought it was going to be. So, what do we expect this to be for ESPN? Would it be an incremental take rate? And we would expect that uh, heavy engagement in sports watched on, say, like ESPN, Plus, and you're going to have betting as you're on the couch watching the game. I'll tell you, for me, I don't think. I may not be emblematic of other fans, but when I am when I will be watching, and I will be, when I will be watching the Premier League this weekend and getting very excited and hoping that my team pushes through, I am not looking at my smartphone. I am fixated to the screen to like pass the damn ball. You know, <laughs> find a through ball. Like I that's the sort of thing that I'm engaged in the match not engaged in my phone and so that's where i think things get a little weird like if you're if you're expecting high volume on gambling in live sports you're almost kind of conceding that somebody is going to pick up their smartphone and make some bets and take their attention away from the game will they i mean i guess but i don't know
0: I think there there are different types of watchers. I think there are people who have their teams and root for root for their teams, and you know I think it's it's an older audience, myself included, that tends to be the like I'm just watching the one game. But I also know a lot of people who are watching multiple games and or playing fantasy uh, or something yeah, like sure. that. So then they're sort of piecing together. Different theories. It almost becomes like stocks because it's almost like a portfolio where sure. you start, you know, putting together different different bets on different things. So I, I see the appeal. It's it's not for me, but I think there's potential there.
1: Well, like I said, could be me doing old man shouts at Cloud. So there you go.
0: <laughs> Let's keep the advertising train going and talk a little bit about the trade desk. Uh, so good quarter for them. Revenue growth rates slowed down, a bit still pretty strong at 23%. We, we know the advertising market has been up and down. Uh, you know, but on the earnings call, CEO Jeff Green, he was really clear on this. He said 2024, tidal wave of opportunity. And he said it was both exciting and daunting. He's kind of a hype guy. Is he overselling this?
1: well he may be or he may not be but the the if he's right then the actions that the trade desk is taking in terms of capital allocation are confusing to me so let's let's start there and i'll hit some numbers and explain what i mean for 2023 in the current quarter revenue up 23% Adjusted EBITDA margin of 39%. That was up from 37% in the year prior. So, good numbers here. They seem to be doing good business. They're forecasting for the third quarter, fiscal third quarter, $485 million in revenue. That would be also up 23%. So, maintaining the current growth rate. So, things look good overall. And I would say these numbers suggest to me that the trade desk is the big dog. I expect them to continue to be the big dog, and so I I, I like what I'm seeing here overall. Uh, operating income was 41.7 million. That's up from just 1.7 million in in the year prior. So they got some some real benefits from just their their overall. You know, increase in revenue and operating leverage from managing expenses properly—a really good one. They they were able to cut their general and administrative expenses, so I think they're doing quite well here. Um, They have a really strong balance sheet, and here's what I mean by where the rubber may not meet the road in terms of what Jeff Green said here, Dietra. So in the six months. That just completed The first six months of the fiscal year. The trade desk has generated 300, roughly 316 million in cash from operations. Now, a fair amount of that is from things like stock-based compensation and deferral of, you know, expenses that are non-cash. So they get some benefits from that. But setting that aside, that's a lot of money that is is cash that's available to the business. So what they've done with that, though is they've used 337 million roughly to buy back shares. So if 2024 is a massive tidal wave of opportunity for the trade desk, why is the trade desk buying back shares? Why aren't you reinvesting back into that opportunity? Sucking up the oxygen in the room now. So when that opportunity is unleashed, you'll be even more profitable. You'll grow even faster. I can't say that I know exactly how that money should be put to work, Deidre. It may be that this is just, they're still doing exactly what they need to to seize the opportunity in 2024. And this is all excess cash. But I have to say, it doesn't make much sense to me.
0: Well, it's interesting too because on the call, the CFO talked a little bit about hiring and how they're, you know, they're hiring responsibly. That they're that they're still increasing their headcount, but they want to be careful with it. So you're right that there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Of like, hey, we have this extra money, we're going to buy back these shares, but we also have to be cutting costs elsewhere. Is there some other expense that we're not thinking about in terms of some of the new things that they're developing, like uh, like kokai or the? Um, Open path, or some of the, some of the other technology.
1: I mean, I don't know uh, what we do know is that we're we're getting, you know, in terms of results from a peer in in Pubmatic that's on the other side so the trade desk is on the demand side of the uh, digital advertising platforms and Pubmatic is on the supplier side and from the in the results that we saw from Pubmatic now granted I've only given them a cursory look here but it does you know one of the big questions is do they have pricing power they just weren't generating as much pricing power as we might have thought and so if that's true then there is good reason, you know, of pricing power. If pricing is under pressure generally in the advertising market, then the CFO's comments make a ton of sense. Um, you could decide if you think that on the other side of 2023 and into 2024, that there's a massive opportunity there. You could just take that cash, Deidre put it on your balance sheet and say hey folks we got a ton of dry powder and when things get weird we can either make a small strategic acquisition or we can accelerate our investment in open path in you know uid 2.0 um, all of these different things to get ready for the green fields of 2024, but instead they took that capital and bought back shares, which just and and by the way, they didn't reduce their share count in the process. The share count was still up, which means what they were really doing is, you know, trying to soak up the the effects of stock-based compensation issued to employees. So it just feels. At the moment, Deidre like wasted money and doesn't really fit the narrative. So I, I don't have strong objections to what the trade desk is doing here. I just find it a little bit like I don't know maybe raised eyebrows is the way to think about it.
0: (laughs) So something to keep an eye on for the future, then.
1: Yeah, and I would I would like to see. So let's say as we get to the fourth quarter. Let's take a look for what that guidance looks like for 2024. Like how how big is this greenfield opportunity? Jeff Green's a smart guy. He's no dummy. He wouldn't be saying this if he didn't really believe it. He is a salesman, but he's not a dummy. Like he he's not going to try and set up his company to, you know, underwhelm on on expectations. He's forecasting something that he actually sees. But it's weird that the way the capital is allocated doesn't match that the way I would have expected.
0: Well, you used the phrase "big dog" when talking about the trade desk earlier, and I thought I thought that was interesting because that is sort of the exact opposite of the way Jeff Green has been positioning the trade desk. Because he's positioning them a lot as like we're the little guy, we're taking on big tech, we're taking on the walled gardens. He talks a lot about the walled gardens. He feels very, yeah. you know, he feels he feels sort of like Kyote-esque about like taking on the walled gardens. He's got. They're, they're doing some things about this. They've got the Kokai, which is uh, it's their platform. It's a Japanese word for open water. It's their AI-driven way to bring together the metrics from multiple platforms. Is this really the little guy taking on big tech and those walled gardens?
1: Well, in a way, sure. Because inside of the the Google machine and the Meta machine, I mean, those are advertising markets that are controlled by those two and and they are absolute in terms of how those markets are are controlled. So this is more of the open wild where if you are talking about advertising connected TV advertising that is outside of those walled gardens in that market I would say the trade desk Is the big dog. So everything is relative here. So everything in context, but they would say, and I think rightly so, that they're trying to get more advertising dollars out of the walled gardens and position something as for what they do is highly effective. So you can be on the trade desk. Uh, doing advertising buying in a very effective, very useful, and very high ROI way. So why would you want to be spending all of your money inside those walled gardens when we can give you a verifiably great experience with your your different advertising, um, particularly as it relates to newer mediums like uh, connected TV. So I, I do think they are up against it. However, when you're talking about advertising that is outside of the walled gardens, I think by far the number one demand side platform here Deidre, is the Trade Desk. They have mastered in my opinion the platform for buying for buying ad space. I really think they've they've done that. Uh, that in a way that no other platform has really matched up to this point. And so you do have supply siders like Pubmatic who are not going up against them, but instead are partnering. So for sure, I think you would you would say for brand advertising, meta is clearly a big dog. That's a closed market in search advertising. You know, Google is the big dog. That's a closed market. When you go outside of that, outside of those walled gardens, um, and you are doing any kind of demand side advertising, I think the trade desk is leading the way. And, and I'm not sure it's particularly close.
0: Interesting. Well, you just talked about partnerships a little bit. And I know the connected t- TV opportunity is. Massive, huge, but the other opportunity I'm paying a lot more attention to lately is retail advertising. We've seen it become a bigger part of Amazon. We know it's going to be a bigger part of Walmart when they announce earnings uh, on the on the call. Trade Desk talked about adopt of Walmart adopting UID two, which is sort of a way to replace third party cookies, which we've already seen Safari doing away with, and Google is slowly, slowly stepping away from. So, a little bit. Uh, what is UID two and how should we think about this for trade desk and these retail partners that are now sort of a bigger part of the advertising conversation
1: so you're going to have to pardon my my la- my full lack of understanding of of UI2 but here's how i think about it when you get away from using directly personally identifying it in information like you you don't really get to we we've kind of moved away from that idea of you know you are essentially selling your personal information without consent. This is a way to think about identifying and finding audiences using a lot of data and a lot of context and doing it in a very smart and AI driven way, algorithmic way. So you have ways to intelligently target audiences and maybe break it down even more. And I mean, I, I think the the perfect use case for it is connected TV because you have a login and you have a history. And it's it's not the same as like the Nielsen box where you are clicking and doing ratings. It it really is much more like the internet based experience because it is connected. It is logged in, and by virtue of being logged in, the data sets are bigger and way more interesting. And so, really, what this boils down to, Dietra, is what can the trade desk do uniquely well for targeting? Advertising buys with data. I mean, this is a, at, at, you know, ultimately, this is a data driven business, and the Trade Desk wants to get really, really good. And they've historically been really, really good at making better advertising decisions with data. This is just the next step in doing that, but in a way that, for the most part, strips. Personally identifying information out of the equation, or more so than we have seen in the past, because there was, you know, a, a lot of hullabaloo about using um, PII for for years, and so we're moving beyond that into a much more of a first party data uh, platform where people who give you uh, insight. Via their logins, via how they how they do business with particular channels and so forth, and particular media, uh, they give you insight into what it is that that they prefer, and then you can build entire profiles off of that. Uh, the more data there is, the smarter the trade desk can be in how it offers targeting to its customers. So. I think it's really important and the more that the industry adopts this you know UID 2.0 platform the deeper the trade desk moat gets and so they they have a vested interest in really pushing this standard so I'm not surprised to see them doing it
0: yeah, and it's 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 really interesting to me the retail advertising side because I think that there's just so much opportunity there, and it's really you know you've got this audience that is already there and already shopping, and so you have an opportunity to just kind of build upon that.
1: Right, right, and you know the more the more data you get, the sharper you know the the better the context, the sharper the message, the better you can do. Some of it is still going to be annoying. Advertising is <laughs> yes. is, is, is never going to be perfect. Advertising is never going to be perfect. But you can do different things when you are talking about different digital environments, particularly like connected TV. One of my favorites that I think is can be really useful and one of the reasons I believe that connected TV has more of a future is when you watch movies on one of the you know, digital platforms, let's say like a Peacock or a Paramount Plus, we'll say, they'll, they'll give you like two minutes of ads and say, hey, once we show you these ads, and then you, know, you get an uninterrupted movie. And so, they have to really nail it with those ads at the at the front end. I like that model because I'm way more willing to not just check out from the ads when I know that on the other side of the ads I got two hours of entertainment coming. And I, I find that fascinating. I think we're gonna see more experimentation and in, in you know that sort of mold. So there's lots of things that we could see. I, you know, as a data-driven platform and as a digital platform, the Trade Desk gives advertisers a lot of opportunity to to experiment with not only their their platforms but also formats.
0: So we're stuck with the ads, but maybe they'll be a little bit more relevant.
1: We hope. We hope. <laughs> I mean, I think so far, when I've been on. I will say this, I think the ads on the streaming platforms that I frequent have been better than the ads that I see on YouTube, and yet both are getting better. Like For one, this is the ad I always get on YouTube. I can't tell you whether or not the Trade Desk is involved in this or not, but I get endless, endless Deidre ads for Notion which is the note-taking tool that I use. I'm looking at it right now. It I use it every single day and it's it is getting sharper and better. So it's it's clearly more relevant. Doesn't mean I'm going to pay for, you know, more Notion, but at least they're hitting me with the right message.
0: <laughs> that works. Well, thanks for your time today, Tim. Thanks, Deidra. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.